coming. Tonight's shir was dedicated by Mrs. Leah Presser. This is an honor of Zeich Nishmas, her father. Shalom Zalman, Hakoyin, Ben Reb Tzvi, Olav HaShalom, Be'ez Nisham, have a very good aliyah to the greatest of heights. And may he channel lots of brachas to you and um, to your family for all that you need and all that you wish for yourself. And only good and bracha both in the material and in the spiritual. And very, very soon, um, we will merit that all those that are passed away will reunite with us down here um, by the coming of Mashiach. And speedily, as it says, that being that Mashiach was so delayed, Tchias Amesim is going to happen very quickly thereafter, as opposed to the way initial plan is, that it's supposed to happen that 40 years later. But it could be because the Gullus was so long we need to make those things happen earlier. So may we see that happen now. By the time the yard site is, 7th of Shvat. Another dedication today was by Anonymous. And this is in honor of his birthday. Mahashem bless Anonymous with um, a lot, a lot of bracha, mazel, and good. And only, only happiness and wonderful, wonderful things um, in, in the material and in the spiritual. Parnasa barachava and great, great, great things for you. And your family, thank you so much. And another dedication was, very special dedication, this was by my children. And this is in honor of my birthday, so I want to thank my children. My birthday is tonight, so I am uh, a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser. And uh, I want to bless my children that they um, should derive nachas from their father, and I should have a lot of nachas from them. And that will happen if it's good for both of us. So uh, may Hashem bless us. And bless the entire Mayan community and, and all of us because we're all one. So um, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, tonight is the Baba Sali's yard site. It's very special. Tonight is a great Hasidic master's yard site, Ramosha Leib of Sasev. And I once, a little while ago, I saw that there was one more yard site on Dalit Shvat. Also one of the great Hasidic masters, but I don't remember right now. Okay. Um, we are beginning uh, the Parsha of Bo, and this is really, really, really special. Parsha of Bo is a very special Parsha. Let me, but for one moment I realized I didn't shut my ringer, and I don't want to have a disturbance, so give me a second. That should not happen. Okay, here we are. So, Parsha of is the parsha of 
Yitzias Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt. Even though the going out of Mitzrayim spans the entire beginning of Sefer Shemos, the first few parshios from um, from Shemos, Va'era, Boy, B'Shalach, um, is all Yitzias Mitzrayim, the first four parshios. Yet, from amongst them all, if we narrow it down, the, the parsha, the Torah portion, that is the most specific, Yitzias Mitzrayim, is Parsha Sarbo. Because this is where the actual exodus takes place. Paro literally lets the Jewish people go out of Mitzrayim, and the Yidin, the Jewish people, leave Mitzrayim. They pack their bags, and they're on the go. Um, and we see the, the power of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim already from the very beginning of the Parsha. Even though the Parsha narrates at the very beginning, there are still a few makos. Paro has not yet succumbed. The Paro has not yet um, surrendered. And he's still trying to hold on to the Jewish people with all of his might and all of his strength. He's still trying, uh, even though he is suffering terribly, yet he's still trying to keep his grip on the Jewish people. But you see already, uh, and it takes another three makos, the maka of the Arba, the locust, the maka of the choshech of darkness, and makos b'chores, the plague of the firstborn, to finally, finally crack Paro, and to break the shackles of the exile, and to free the Jewish people. Um, yet, we see that there is a change of heart in the beginning of Parsha's bow, we see already that the Iron Curtain is, is cracking, it's breaking down. What do you see in this Makkah? What's unique about the seventh Makkah is that Paro begins to negotiate the release of the Jewish people even before the plague began. Till now, on the last seven Makkos, um, plagues, Paro does at a certain point agree to let the Jewish people out. He says, Moshe, you know, just stop the Makkah and... Where, where, where you, you can go, but he only does it after he has already been bitten, after he's already suffering, when he's screaming in pain, so then he says, let them go. But he never, but when Moshe comes to warn him, he laughs at him. And he's not, he's not, he's not, he's brushing him off. He disregards him. This is the first time that Moshe comes to warn Pharaoh before the Makkah, by the seventh plague, the plague of, of the locusts, of the Arba. And Paro's servant, first Paro doesn't want to hear of it. And, and Moshe leaves, and Paro's servants begin telling him, don't you realize that Mitzrayim is gone? What are we doing? This is crazy, this is suicidal. So they call Moshe back. Yes, the negotiations don't work out exactly, because Paro only wants to limit the going out of Egypt only to the men. And Moshe demands that everybody should go, the men, the women, the children, we're going, the animals, even one hoof is not going to remain in Mitzrayim. And Paro can't hear that yet. Um, but you see that he's beginning to crack. So you see already that the essence, the power of the of the of Yitzias Mitzrayim begins already right at the beginning of the parsha. As we continue through the parsha, even though the psukim of the actual Exodus is just very few psukim, but again the entire parsha is oozing, it's dripping with Yitzias Mitzrayim from everything. Um, when God tells Moshe to instruct Paro about the plague of the firstborn, Hashem is already speaking of the Jewish people becoming wealthy, that they should go and they should borrow from the Egyptians all their clothing, utensils, jewelry. And, 
and that Hashem has given the charm of the people in the eyes of the Egyptians. And that Moshe's name is so big and all over Mitzrayim, everybody is, wow, everybody admires Moshe Rabbeinu. And then you have actually the instructions of God for that which the Jewish people need to do to prepare the final preparations for the, for the going out of Mitzrayim, the making of the Karban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, and all that preparations, and pouring the, the blood on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the doorposts, and all of this. So this is like, you can see a sense, momentum is building. But the whole content of that is Yetzirah Mitzrayim. Also, as we mentioned earlier, when Moshe Rabbeinu talks about the go, till now it was general, let the Jewish people go. Moshe Rabbeinu did not discuss details. In this parasha we find out that it's the men, it's the women, it's the children. With our sons, with our daughters, with our animals, with our cattle. Even in Moshe Rabbeinu's words, you hear the richness and the broadness of the redemption, that it's all inclusive, it includes everybody. And then later, you have Ahibach Tzialayla at the strike of midnight. And you have Hashem Hikakol Bukhari that God Himself comes down and beats the, the, the firstborn. And you have power running out in the middle of the night calling Moshe, where are you? And he lets the Jewish people out, go. You have the actual packing of the bags and the Jewish people grabbing their matzah on their shoulders, their dough on their shoulders, and out they go. And all the way in the end of the parsha, you have the mitzvah of um, sanctifying the firstborn of various different animals and also of the donkeys. Last two parshios. And in those, you have the mitzvah of tefillin. That you should, have a, you should have it as a sign on your arm, on your hand. should be a remembrance between your eyes. What's the remembrance? Pasek says, clearly you should remember that God took you out of Egypt. That's what it is. So the entire, you have the actual preparation for the exodus as we power was being broken. You have the preparation of the Jewish people for going out. You have the going out. And then you have the constant memory throughout all of history that we have to remember that we went out of Mitzrayim. So the theme so strongly emphasized, so strongly um, 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 demonstrated in the Parsha is Yitzias Mitzrayim. If that's the case, which is the case, we need to really analyze the name of the parsha. The name of the parsha is Bo El Paro. Most people refer to it as Bo, Parsha's Bo. However, um, in Rambam, where he names all the parshios, and so also in the Avuda Ram, who's a book on the order of davening, which he also goes to the parshios, he names the parsha Bo El Paro, come to Paro. And we know that everything is in the name. And last week we also discussed the significance of the name Vo'era. And this week we're going to discuss also the significance of Bo'el Paro come to Baro, which seems that not only is this not the best name for the Parsha, it seems to contradict the theme of what the Parsha is about. Now, I do want to say we touched upon this last year in a class, but last year I gave a different answer. So the question is the same, but last year we explored it from a different angle, and today's another answer, and they're, they're, they're both phenomenal. What we discussed last year, it's worth listening to. Last year the class is called The Terrifying Encounter. You can listen to it on, on online. And uh, here we have the answer uh, as we see it this year. And uh, it's really, really interesting. So what's the question? The question is as follows. Bo El Paro emphasizes that Paro is in control. Paro is powerful. Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of the Jewish people, the greatest man ever to live, the Navi Hashem, the prophet of God, the man who brings the Torah to the world, has to get permission. He needs to get this thing done. The, the objective, get the Jewish people from Mitzrayim to Sinai. 
Har Sinai. The Torah has to be given. We need to move. We can't do it because we're powerless. Why are we powerless? Because Paro's borders were so strong. Egypt was so powerful. Egypt was so strong. No one can leave Egypt. It was never in the history of Egypt that one slave ever ran away from Egypt. And here he wants to take out three million people, two, three million people from the tribe. This is not, Paro's not going to let. So you need to go get Paro's consent. You need to get permission. So Boel Paro, Moshe Rabbeinu has to go. Not, Paro's not coming to Moshe. Moshe has gone to Paro. That shows that Paro is the one who calls the shots. He's in control. That is what Boal power emphasized. Now, especially if you continue into the next Pasuk, it's not just speaking about Paro, um, you know, kind of weakened Paro, but that Paro that appears before us, at least in the beginning of Parsha's Bo, when it says Boal Paro, is a very, very staunch and very, 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 very brazen and very and has a lot of chutzpah and audacity to God. As you see in Pasuk Gimel, the third verse, Hashem told him, Boel Paro. Moshe listens, and it says, Moshe and Aaron come to Paro, and what do they say? Ad Masai, until when? Me'anta, are you refusing? Le'onois mi'ponai. How long are you refusing? Le'onois. What does Le'onois mean? Rashi means to make yourself like a poor man before me. How long is it that you're, you're stubborn? You don't want to succumb. You don't want to surrender. You don't want to humble yourself before me. You're standing here like a, with, with, with chutzpah. Instead of, you should be a ani. You should have been humbled by, by now after the sixth. How long is it going to take until you will be broken? So what do you see from here? That the status of Paro when Moshe is coming to him is that Paro is not even one iota humbled before God. Paro is mighty, he's standing there in all of his strength. That doesn't make any sense. Why would the name of the parsha of Yitzias Mitzrayim, which Yitzias Mitzrayim came about as a result of a crushing and a, and a complete decimation of Paro. Paro is broken to the point that he's so shooken up, he's running in his pajamas in the middle of the night. Okay, that's how shooken up, that's how kind of panic he's in. Mitzrayim is in total disarray. Everything is collapsing. Everything is falling apart. They're terrified. They're scared any moment. They're all dead. So Paro, this mighty empire, has been brought down to its knees. And now the Jewish people can come. How could it be that a parasha that emphasizes, where the whole theme is Yitzias Mitzrayim, that the Jews are free to go, and there's no force, and there's no alien power that is holding them in exile... The name of that very parsha is called the Boal Paro, which, it's, which emphasizes Paro as a mighty ruler that even our king, our master, and our greatest king ever to live has to come to beg and plead, so to speak, to Paro for permission for the Jewish people to leave. Something doesn't match up. Now, what, what we really mean really in the question is, why couldn't the Torah have really organized the parsha a little different? Put the last three plagues or at least the last two out of the last three, Arbe and Choshech, in last week's Parsha, Parsha's Va'era, in which Paro is taking a beating, we're beating him, but he's not yet beaten, but he's taking a beating, and open up Parsha's bow with the story of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, the actual exodus. Paro now said, like next week's Parsha, Vahi b'shalach Paro esa'am, that Paro is sending the Jewish people out. So this Parsha should have also began, Vahi, that, that what? That Paro comes to the Jewish people and said, you're free. 
Last week's parsha should have ended with the last and final blow. And this parsha should have picked up, Vayomer Paro Yisrael, get out of here! That's what the par- And then it would have, that's Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. If you want to say, mm, you know what, Makas Bukhoris is like the, 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 the power that broke the camel's back. So you want to add that in. Okay, so Makas Bukhoris should have been in this week's parsha. But why the earlier Mak, especially the staunch Paro that's not listening and he's stubborn, what's it doing in this Parsha? Add that to Parsha's Ve'era and you'll have the Parsha of Parsha's Bo called with a different name and, and as a result, and what? And the theme would have been Yetzirah Mitzrayim. Not only is the, the last three Makas, which are all part of this last hammering and breaking Paro's defenses and breaking them down, not only is it included in the Parsha of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, but that the entire Yetzias Mitzrayim is named, what's the name of the parsha of Exodus of Yetzias Mitzrayim? Boel Paro, which emphasizes the opposite. So something doesn't fit. So to understand this, we need to get a little deeper into what's the real meaning of Boel Paro, come to Paro. The Zohar says something fascinating. And again, I quoted this Zohar last year, in the same class, Monday's class, but over there we draw a completely different conclusion. So now, hear what the Zohar says. The Zohar says, Omer Reb Shimon, Reb Shimon says, Hashta Islegalah Razin, wow, now we got to reveal secrets. The Inan Mizdapkin Le'elavatata, these are secrets that cleave above and below. Oh, so already exciting. Reb Shimon Bar Yochai says, let's reveal secrets. What does it say? The Zohar is, Maxiv Boyo Paro, what does it say? Come to Paro. Lechel Paro Meboyo It should have said, Go to Paro. What does it mean, come to Paro? It should have said, Go. My Bo, what does it mean, come? Hashem is telling him, Go. Hashem took Moshe Rabbeinu. Chamber after chamber. Bo means, Come with me. Why? Because God was leading him into room. From one room into the other room, from one room into the other room. To this big, big snake. To this big, 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 big tannin. Tannin is a fish or a snake. Or a fish snake. What's a fish snake? A crocodile. Now, Paro, interesting. Paro in the, in the Navi, in last week's Navi, in last week's Haftorah, Pasha's Va'era, the Navi compares Paro to a huge crocodile. Who, who, who's, who's this big, big monster, sea monster, that's in the Nile River, that claims the Nile is mine, and I created myself. And I created me, and I created the Nile. The Nile, okay? So here the Zohar says, so Hashem is bringing Paro to this big, big, big beast. A very powerful, a very powerful, supernal beast. That many, many, many levels emanate from him, evolve from him. This is the big snake. This is the big beast. This is the big monster. And Moshe was terrified. Until now, you're going to wonder why Moshe was so scared. Didn't Moshe kind of deal with evil and with bad things until now? Nah. Until now, Moshe was only confronting the expressions of this beast. The Orin, the, the streams, streaming forth from this darkness. Streams of darkness. Powerful emanations of darkness. But not the nucleus, not the source, not the head of all the klipa, of all the darkness. But to go into the very root of evil itself, Dachali was scared, and he did not approach. 
Begin the Chamele because Moshe Rabbeinu saw Mishtaresh Pishrashen Elohim that he's rooted in supernal roots. See? Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't afraid of physical paro. Moshe Rabbeinu saw that paro was a force of evil, a force of evil that is rooted in a very, very powerful place. And therefore Moshe was scared. When God saw that Moshe was terrified, and anybody else is not able to wage war against him, any other emissary, if Hashem was to send any other emissary, anybody else, no one can, no one can take him down. No one can take this mighty force of evil down. God can't send an agent. What did Hashem do? Hashem said, I myself am upon you, Paro, the king of Egypt. He quotes a Pasuk in, in, in Yechezkel. Of the big monster crocodile that is, that is crouching in his, in his rivers, in his streams. And I am upon you. The only one who can take on this heavyweight champion, the only one who can fight him, is God Himself. No one else. I am God. And therefore, Hashem says to Moshe, Boel Paro, come with me. Because to fight him, you're scared, rightfully so. You can't take him down. No one can take him down. Come with me, I'm going to take him down. But I'm going to take him down through you, with you. I'm going to empower you to take him down. It's my power funneled in you, and you will take him down. That's what it says. So, okay, this is really amazing. That's the meaning, bow, come with me, I'll paro to paro. So let's understand what this means. You see, as we said earlier, this is evil. But this is the root of evil. The root of evil means, the paro is the monster of all monsters means that if we look through history and we see all, all, all the vicious dictators, rulers, ferocious, dark people that have gotten up in the world and have caused havoc and suffering and pain, and especially those that have persecuted the Jewish people, and, there is, and, and, and we have no shortage of these evil beasts from Hitler to Stalin to uh, whatever his name was, the, the, the head of the Inquisition, and the, from the Crusaders and Chamelenitsky and the, and the Roman czars, one after another, and Titus who destroyed the first base of Middash, and Zeradin who killed thousands of Jewish babies. And then, I mean, you go, the list goes on and on of these horrible beings that caused so much suffering to Jewish people. They were all rooted in one man, the seed. The seed of all of them was in Paro. It makes sense because the Medrash says that all the exiles are rooted in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was the Shoresh, the root, the core of all the exiles. So if Mitzrayim is the root of all exiles, and what's Mitzrayim mean? Mitzrayim comes from the word Meitzar. It causes an angst, it causes a squeeze, it causes a crunch on the Jewish people. So this is the, this is the source of all crunch, of all suffering, of all abuse. So Paro is the abuser of all abusers. The monster of all monsters. We can imagine that if you take one human being and wrap you wrap Hitler and, and Stalin and 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 and, and all, all these all these horrible, horrible, vicious, bloodthirsty killers, and you put them all into one person, and this is power. So Moshe was terrified. Again, not of his physical strength, but of his spiritual power that he represented. Now the question, however, is why now? Why does the Zohar make the comment right now? The truth is the words Bo El Paro is really stated 
not only here. See, it's, it's stated over here in Pasha's Bo. But really, the words Bo al Paro is stated three times before this. Bo al Paro. So why, what does the Zohar now wake up? Go in the Bo al Paro. What should have said Leich al Paro? The answer is, let me tell you when. The first time it mentions it is before all the Makos. Hashem tells him, go to Paro and speak to him what I told you to let the Jewish people out. The second time is by the Maka of Tzfardea, of the frogs. And the third time is by the Maka of Orov, the mixed animals. These three places it says, Bo al Paro. Okay? And then the fourth one, and the fourth one is over here by Arba. But there's a distinction, there's a distinguishable fact, there's something that very distinguishes this time from all the others. All the other three times in which Hashem says, Bo al Paro, it says a message. Bo al Paro and say to him so and so. Bo al Paro and warn him about this maka. Bo al Paro and speak to him and say to him so. In the beginning of Parsha's Bo, it doesn't say anything. <laughs> Let me read you the Pasuk. Because I hardened his heart and the heart of his servants so that I can put my plagues in him. So that you will tell your children and your grandchildren that which I poked fun of Egypt and the wonders that I've done in them and you will know that I am God. Hashem did not instruct Moshe to say anything to Paro. just says, go to Paro. Later it says, Moshe Rabbeinu came and he warned them about the locusts. But it doesn't say that in God's words that Hashem told Moshe. That... So Rashi was bothered by that. And Rashi says, when it says, boy al Paro, Rashi adds, vahas boy and warn him. Rashi added that. But in the Chumash, there isn't a trace of God telling him what to do. So the Zohar is bothered by that question. And Reb Shimon Bayochoy's answer is, guess what? The reason you're going to Paro now is not for any other purpose. It's not to get the Jewish people out. The mission now is not to get the Jewish people out. Because you know what? To get the Jewish people out. Paro on his own, his heart melted already. After the hail that was so frightening and scary, Paro was, would have let the Jewish people out. God manipulated his heart and hardened his heart. Hashem, Hashem ratcheted a couple of yanks. He, he, he turned the dial a couple of times. Paro's heart, which was soft like jello, suddenly became hard like a rock. And he said, no. So obviously, it's not the point. The point, wasn't to, the point was not to get the Jewish people out. Because if that would have been the objective, we could have left after the seventh Makkah and everything would have been over with. It wasn't necessary anymore. The point is one thing. Go to Paro to pick a fight with him. Again, go to Paro to pick a fight with him. But I want you to fight with him. Now here's the thing. I want you to, I want you to challenge him. But this time, here's, why was Moshe so scared? Moshe met Paro many times before. The answer is, until now, Moshe did not meet Paro in his private office. He met Paro in all the various different places. Sometimes at the river. Even when he went to Paro's palace, he did not go into the most inner, 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 inner chamber. This time Hashem says, Boy, El Paro, go meet Paro at his core. And that's where Moshe was scared. To go to Paro where Paro is in his inner, inner chamber, Moshe was terrified. Why? And why is God first telling you that, why is Hashem telling you go, go meet him oh, meet him somewhere else Paro leaves why Dafka go in and the answer is because the point over here is to break Paro and in order to break him I want you to break him at his mightiest points I want you to crush him at his core I want you to go into the nucleus at the very very core essence of all darkness and over there thrash, 
break it, bust it at its core. That's the point. And automatically when you break it at its core, all of its branches will go falling off. All of its expressions, all of its, all of its offshoots will automatically fall apart because you crushed it at its, at its essence. At its core. We know always that you are the strongest in your, in your, in your base. Everybody's the strongest. You know, in, 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 in sports, you know, the weather has home court always has the advantage. Because if you're playing in your own court, you're stronger in your court. You have the fan base, everybody cheering for you. If you have a meeting for someone, good tactic in business. If a meeting with someone, if the meeting is in your house, you have leverage. If the meeting is in their place, you're weak. If you meet a coffee bean, okay, now you're good. You're kind of even. That's the way it is in every negotiation. You are much stronger in your root, in your place. Halachically, it's that way. If a piece of meat, if you, have a, if you find a piece of meat in a city that's mostly Jews, in the town of New Square, okay? I don't know any, any non-Jews live there. Maybe there's two or three. Who live in the town, and you find a, some salami, a roll of salami over there. Halachically, you're allowed to eat it. It doesn't have a heksher, you're allowed to eat it. Why? Because you know, if it's on the street over here, where did it fall from? It fell from one of the homes, and it was Jewish, so you can assume it was Rov. How about if you have nine butcher shops, all of them are kosher meat, and one butcher shop is not kosher meat, and you go into one of the butcher shops, and, but you, 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 you totally lost, you, know, you're, 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 you weren't really paying attention, you went to a butcher, you bought a piece of meat, and then you left, and you were sure that every, every butcher shop is kosher, and then you find out that one is not kosher, and you didn't know which one you went to, and even though nine are kosher, or 90 are kosher, and only one is not kosher, the law is that you're not allowed to eat that meat, even though it's most probable. Why? Since you picked up the meat in its source, kavua, in the store, the guy has his store over here, that's called kavua, that's its base. Anything that's in its base doesn't become bottle. It's strong, it doesn't become nullified. You can't cancel it. So where is Paro in his might and in his power and in his strength that is unbreakable? In his in his inner room. And Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I want you to go into his inner room at the very, very core. And over there, I want you to break him. That's why we find, it's an amazing thing, what happened by, by Makas Bechoris, what, what really happened, the opposite happened. The might of Paro that was so strong and so was so powerful, Paro's power, is the, Paro went running out in the middle of the street Himself, where does Moshe? In other words, he was so vulnerable. He was so weak. It was the, the big mighty power that sits in his throne room and is so strong. Now he was out in the street running around trying to find where Moshe lives. You're talking about from the utmost of strength to the utmost of, of power to the utmost of weakness, of, of nothingness. Everything was turned around. But Moshe was commanded to go confront Paro in his, in his might and in his power. And that's unique. According to this, we can really say as follows. That the beginning of Parsha's bow, what makes this Parsha, be the Parsha of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, is in this Parsha begins the takedown of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, this force of darkness, this very, very, very dark force, is now being destroyed. And, but let's hear something very deep. Not in regards to the liberation of the Jewish people. Because taking, breaking Mitzrayim to let the Jewish people go, that started already with the plague of blood. That started last. 
We're talking about breaking Egypt unrelated. And we'll, we'll, we'll soon understand the significance of that. But breaking Egypt unrelated to liberating the Jews. There's two things. Jews need to go out. And as we said earlier, the Jews could have gone out already at this point. But there was something that needed to be accomplished. What needed to be accomplished is that Klippa, the unholy, needed to be demolished and crushed. And, but here's the beautiful thing. Here's the most amazing thing. That shattering and destroying darkness and evil in a manner that it has nothing to do with us, just for the sake of breaking evil and destroying them, that is the essence of our liberation of Yetzirah Mitzrayim for the Jewish people. In other words, we're talking about a destruction that is not necessary for you to go out. You can go out without it. The point over here is to shatter, to break, to crush evil. Yet, that destruction that happens in the last three makas in this parsha, beginning with parshas, with, with beginning with Makas Arbe, with Boel Paro, is an integral part of us experiencing Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But hold it, doesn't make any sense. If the, it has nothing to do with us, if it's just about breaking them, how is that an integral part of our Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? The answer is, we have to dig deeper into what does Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim mean. And when we get deeper understanding of what does it mean going out of Egypt, and the fullest idea of going out of Egypt, then we can understand why crushing evil and destroying it just for the sake of destroying it, is the ultimate freedom for the Jewish people. How does that work? So let's get a little deeper into the whole idea of Golos and Giyula, exile and redemption. God promises Avram Avinu, I'm going to, the objective, I, I'm going to give you the land. This land is your land. I promise you, I'm giving covenant to give him, give him the land of the seven nations. That's the objective. Now, what does it mean to give the land? It means that the land that the Jewish people are going to be living in is going to be a holy land. A land of Kedusha. Which by definition, and this is what we discussed last week, and I'm going to reiterate this idea just very briefly, but the idea of Eretz Yisrael being a Jewish land is really an oxymoron. There There is something, an impossibility. Because Eretz and Yisrael are opposites. Why? Eretz means from the word Arceus. Arceus means earth. Earth is low. It's low. What does it mean earth is low? Earth is the lowest substance in creation. Hashem created inanimate, created someach, vegetation, chai, animal, and then he created medaber, a human being. Then he created angels, and then angels, and angels, and angels, and angels, and all the way, all the way to the top is God. Right? Above the whole creation is God. It comes out that the lower you go, the further you go from God. What is the most antithetical to Hashem? Material, physical things. Why? Because physical, and we spoke about this many times, that the main reason why it's so hard for us to acknowledge and see God is because our eyes behold material, physical. When you look at physical, physical is the biggest liar that there is. Because physicality creates an illusion as if things just exist without a creator. That's it. If we wouldn't be living in a physical world, we would see that we're all energy, we're all force. There's a force that's creating us and making us. If we would be living in a spiritual realm, it's obvious there is a creator. There's no question. The reason why people can question and philosophize and mm, all kinds of things and even come to a conclusion of an atheist that there is no God and things just happen and evolve in mm, billions of years, whatever. All that is because material is, dece- is deceiving. Physicality is deceiving. It creates, it knows it doesn't know anything but itself. That's, that's the material. I am, I am. And it creates that sense that there, 
Eretz, what does it mean then Eretz Yisrael? Yisrael means a Jewish land. What does Jew mean? A Jew, Yisrael means Yashar Kale, direct line to God. Yisrael, a Jew means someone who's connected to Hashem. Eretz Yisrael means a land that is connected, to, a land that's Jewish. It doesn't mean that Jews live there. It means that the land is Jewish. It's Jewish soil. It's Jewish Gashmias. It's Jewish material. What does it mean, Jewish material? Is that even though it's material and earthy, yet it's obvious that it's godly. And when you look at the land, it doesn't. Oh, you, you reveal there's another meaning, because there's another meaning to the word Eretz. Hear deeply. There's another meaning to the word Eretz. Eretz means from the word ratzon. Ratzon, desire. R- ratzon means sharatzis is ratzon kona. Chazal say, why is the land called land? Because it desires to do the will of its creator. It desires to do. That means at the root and at the heart and at the core of every physical thing, at the root and at the heart and at the core of all physicality is a desire to, exp- to, to connect to Hashem. That means that the very, very earth that to us externally seems to be the biggest apichorus, the biggest denier of God's existence, at the heart of heart, it really wa- it not only wants to, it runs to do God's will. That's what Eretz really is. When you take Eretz and you make it into Eretz Yisrael, that's the kind of land you have. You have land which expresses a relationship with God. It's land that is holy land. It's land that is godly land. And even more than that, on Eretz Yisrael it says, Eretz, the land, that God's eyes are on the land. Hashem's eyes are on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. What does that mean that God's eyes? Simply it means that Hashem is very, very, very involved. He supervises Eretz Yisrael very, very much more than any other country. But the deeper meaning of Ene Hashem it means it's a land that when you look at the land, you can see that there is that this is that the land is a powered by God. You can see you can see Hashem in the land, and that's Eretz Yisrael. A land that means like this. Generally, the the land, as we spoke before, denies an existence of a creator. Earth implies earth implies gives off a, a false sense of independence, of existence that is not godly. But in addition to that, part of that deception is that everything is based on natural, on natural order. Everything runs according to teva, according to nature. That's the feeling, the sense, the experience you get from earth is that everything is natural, everything is. When you live in Eretz Yisrael, or a true meaning of the land of Israel means a land in which you can see clearly that nature isn't nature. We spoke about this two, three weeks ago. Eretz Yisrael is the total opposite of financial security. In Eretz Yisrael, you don't know where you're going to get your bread tomorrow. Every day you're dependent on the rain coming down from heaven. There is no Nile, there is no water source. You have no, you have nowhere to rely. Every day you have to say, Hashem, I'm hungry, feed me. And God responds. As we spoke from Rabbeinu Bechaya, that you have to go get the keys. It's like a teenager who doesn't, he feels dependent on his father. Why? Because every time he needs to go somewhere, he needs to ask his father for the keys. He doesn't have his own keys to the car. When you live in Eretz Yisrael, you're relying on God every moment for everything because Eretz Yisrael gives the sense that Hashem is the only power and the only control and you turn to Him for everything you need because He is the power of everything. He's the power of morning, He's the power of the afternoon, He's the power of evening, He's the power of light, He's the power of darkness, He's the power of summer, He's the power of winter, He's the powers of tall and 
short. And he's the power of red. He's the power of blue. He's the power of yellow. He's the power of soft, of hard, of all existence. Only him. Everything is another expression of God. That's the meaning of Eretz Yisrael. Everything. Everything you see godliness. Everything you see Kedusha in. That's Eretz Yisrael. On the other hand, there is... See, what Hashem wanted, Hashem didn't want... If Hashem wants a holy land, Hashem could have done that immediately. We lived in Eretz Yisrael. Think about it. The Jewish people were in Eretz Yisrael initially. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were there. They had a family there. So what's the whole point of the Gullahs, of the exile? Because here's an amazing thing, and we have to hear this. This is very important. And that is that you cannot... Hashem didn't want us to have a land where, he's, where Hashem is everywhere. Obvious. Hashem wanted us to make Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. That this godliness of the earth should come from our toil and our efforts. It should not be something that we're thrown into and given as a gift. Because then it's not really ours. So Hashem wants us to make Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. Even though we were initially planted in Eretz Yisrael, it says, interesting, it says Eretz Yisrael is one of the things that you cannot acquire without suffering. It's one of the three things you can only acquire with Yisurim. Torah is one of them, Eretz Yisrael is another one. You cannot acquire it without pain. Why? You have to work for it. Why? Because if you're automatically living in a world where you can see godliness everywhere, it's not really, really yours. It's only yours. When you make a land that's physical and earthy and not godly, make it godly. How is this achieved? How is it achieved that we're going to make Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael? That's why the Jews have to be, go out of Eretz Yisrael and come back and conquer it. And the land should dafka be a land of Kanani, Chiti, Amori, of the seven nations. And we will go into that land and fight and fight and fight until we we'll conquer it. In order for us to spiritually conquer the land, transform earth, that earth should become, that nature should not conceal God, and we should poke holes in nature. And we should be able to see that Hashem is the one in charge of everything that's happening in my life. In order for that to happen, Jews have to be thrown into the total opposite. So what did Hashem do to the Jewish people? We spoke about this a few weeks ago. From all places in the world, where did He put them? He put them in a land where it is the most earthy. The most, a land that is the most antithetical to the Jewish message that God runs everything. That's why, what does Hashem say to Avram Avinu? Hear the words, it's so beautiful. Hashem says to the Jewish people, I will, to Avram Avinu, I will put them to a land that's not theirs. What's the deeper meaning? I will put them in a land that's not theirs. It means I will put them in a land that's total diametrically opposed to a land that's theirs, that's Jewish. Jewish land means God is everywhere. You see Hashem everywhere. It's just so natural that Hashem is the source of your income and your life, and therefore everything you use in your resources, you right away give it back to God. You do mitzvahs with everything. That's if you're living in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Lolahem is a land that is, stands an opposite to that. Not only is it an opposite, not only is that when you, it's so foreign, it's a land that demonstrates, that doesn't demonstrate its relationship with God. It's the quite on, it's Mitzrayim. What does Mitzrayim mean? Mitzrayim means it's constricting. And, who, and why is Mitzrayim called Mitzrayim? We said earlier, what's the real reason it's called Mitzrayim? Is because it's constricting the Jewish people. Oh, the, Gala said, the, the, the Medrash says that why is all Gali is called Mitzrayim? Shem Matzirin Yisrael. They, they constrict Israel. If Israel means Yashar Kale, direct connection to God, if that's what Israel means, 
Meitzar to Yisrael. What does it mean, Meitzar? It means it's a land that's opposing and constricting and blocking us from experiencing this idea that, 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 um, that God is the essence of life. And he's the essence of even the material world. And it's all holy and it's all godly. Mitzrayim is a total antithetical antithesis to that. That's why everything in Egypt was against the idea that there's one God. First of all, it was full of idolatry. It was a pagan culture. Secondly, everything, the law in Egypt was immoral. Everything in Egypt was, 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 was there to, to, to create, a set, to fight what is moral and what is holy. It was full of immorality. It's called Ervasa Aretz, the filth of the land. The Jews lived in the filthiest place. The place where everything that was against holiness and godliness was in their face all the time. Why did the Jews have to go there? Why did Jews have to go to a place that is so against? The answer is, since we need to take Eretz and turn it and make land Jewish, you hear that? We need to make land, the material, physical world Jewish. And ultimately the objective is, I forgot to say this, it's very important. The objective is that, no, no, we have a small little land called the country of Israel. And when you go there, you're living in Jewishness. You're living in the godly country. But when you leave Eretz Yisrael, you go back to Los Angeles. And Los Angeles has different rules. It doesn't work that way. The point of our work in Eretz Yisrael is that what? That what's going to be when Mashiach comes? Eretz Yisrael is going to expand in the entire world. It doesn't mean that everywhere is going to be technically Eretz Yisrael. can't mean that. Because the Torah does say that Eretz Yisrael is going to become bigger, but there's certain borders and boundaries to the land of Israel. We're going to have, instead of a land of seven nations, we're going to have a land of ten nations. But it's also still a certain area in the Middle East. It's not going to physically... Australia is not Eretz Yisrael. Manhattan is not Eretz Yisrael. Los Angeles is not Eretz Yisrael. It means that our effect on the material, physical world is so strong... That just like when you're living in Israel, you can sense God in everything. That the natural is not natural, the natural is godly. Eventually, when we are done with this world, when we are finished with all of our mitzvahs that we have done, you will sense God. You cannot live in denial of God no matter where you are because nature itself is expressing Hashem. We made the entire world Eretz Yisrael. Everywhere is Jewish Everywhere responds to God. Everywhere is godly conscious. In order for us to really do that, what does God do to the Jewish people? He challenges us. And He puts us into a country where everything over there is pushing, putting thousand, thousand pounds of pressure or a million pounds of pressure to try to t- push us away and not believe that God is the one in control. Everything around it is darkness, concealment. And the Jewish people have two, two, two objectives and here very, very close. Number one, not allow this to affect us and us remain Jewish even in such a land. That was accomplished in Parshas Vayechi. The Jews came down to Mitzrayim, Vayechi Yaakov, Be'eretz Mitzrayim. In the land of Mitzrayim, they made a yeshiva. And the land of Mitzrayim, they studied Torah. And it says that Yaakov's best years in his life were the 70 years that he was in, in Egypt. That despite the fact that they were in an, in, in an Egyptian culture, Jews worshipped Hashem, davened and learned and kept mitzvahs and kept their, their Jewishness. All that, that means Egypt did not affect them. And we are not influenced by these powerful forces. That's only stage number one. Stage number two is that we should infiltrate Egypt itself, infiltrate Egypt, and start taking Egypt itself and making that holy. And that comes in two stages. Now please hear this. I'm a little bit short in time and I really want to get through this. Two, Two points. Number one, 
we have to convert and take all the sparks of holiness that are in Egypt and make them holy. So it's one thing to protect ours. That's stage number one. We do not become influenced. We remain Jewish even when we're living in a culture and an environment that is so immoral and anti-Jewish. That's only stage one. Stage number two is we take the elements of Egypt and start making them Jewish. How do you do that? So there were three things that happened. First of all, spiritually, this is a very amazing concept that we once spoke in a class. The, spiritually, all that was accomplished when we started having babies in Mitzrayim. When Jews had millions of children were born in Egypt, these were all Egyptian babies. And they were born Jews. The very fact that all these Egyptian souls were born to Jewish people, it says the children that are born to the, to the Jewish people when we are in Gullus is actually taking the energy, it's taking the sparks. They're not really Egyptian babies. They're sparks of holiness that are stuck in the klippa and they need to be extracted. So all of that was extracted and became Jewish. We built the Jewish people from the Egyptian energy and it became, that's why Egypt was so worried when there was such, an, such, a, such a population growth. That's number one. Number two, number two, we actually converted some Egyptians when we left. Not too many, but it says, Vegam Erev Rav, a mixture of multitudes came along from Egypt with the Jewish people. Stage number three, a massive amount of money came out with the Jewish people because Egypt gave all their money, all their wealth, their jewelry. And we know that Egypt was the wealthiest country and Egypt gathered all the money from the whole world. By the time of the famine, when Yosef was everybody came to buy food from a whole civilized world. Everybody came to, that means all the money came flowing to Egypt and the Jewish people took it out with them. Is it all about having a lot of money? No, it's not about having a lot of money. It's about what the money will be used for. In Egypt, they were used for all kinds of depraved things. They were used for horrible things. They were used for, 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 for temples, for the idols, for slaughtering people to the idols. They were used for all kinds of horrible things. We built a mishkan for God. We took it all and we elevated it. All that is very important, but that's all considered, that's stage number two. Again, stage number one is, how do we make the darkest of places holy? Number one, we are not influenced. Number two, we take Egypt itself, convert all elements of Egypt, all sparks of holiness are drawn into Kedusha. But here's the last point. There are certain things that are not elevatable. There are certain things that are dark. And we can't elevate because after you take the sparks out, there is the act. What, what happened when, when Adam Arishan sinned? Sparks of holiness fell into the klipa. So there is klipa, there is a snake, there is elements of darkness. They trap, they get energized by the sparks of holiness that they contain, makes them strong. We take the sparks out, but then there is still the, the beast itself that had the sparks. After we take the sparks, we have to crush the beast. The klipa itself has to be broken. That's stage number three. And that itself has two, two parts to it. Number one, when you take the spark out, the klipa is very weak. Because again, its whole strength is only from Kedusha. So the moment you take the holy spark out of it, it is ready to collapse. You just like, it's like we once said, it's like a pinata. It's just like a big fluffy thing. It doesn't really have anything to it. Give it a little boom and it will fall. But then there is another type. When the klipa still holds on to a spark, and because it's holding on to its spark, it's still mighty and it's still strong. And here's the challenge break it while it is still strong, while it still has a spark of holiness, while it is still ferociously strong. That is extremely 
difficult. The Gemara says that when you see a wicked person doing well, being powerful and strong and having all kinds of things, don't pick a fight with him. Don't try to start up with him because at this time it's not the right time. Lay low. Reb Shimon Bayachai is the only one that argues and Reb Shimon Bayachai says, no, you could fight him. So it says in, Kab- it says in Hasidus, even the biggest tzaddikim cannot fight Klippa when it's still powerful, when it still has a spark. You can't fight him. You have to wait till you drain him from the spark. You drain the energy out, it'll fall. But there is something to break the Klippa in its might. That was where Boel Paro comes in. Paro had not released all the sparks of holiness. He still had might and he still had power. Something was still there. So strong and so mighty that when Klippa is still strong, only God himself can break him. Nobody but God. That's why Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, you come with me. We're going to come to this dark giant force of darkness and we're going to knock it down and break him in his might and in his strength and in his power. And he's going to be broken. And you need, and I'm going to give you the power to do that. It's an interesting thing. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu the power? We said earlier, the Zohar says, no agent can do it. Nobody but God himself. How come Moshe Rabbeinu is the one? Why doesn't God do it? Why does he take Moshe? And the answer is, a tzaddik, a tzaddik, who is so nullified to God, who has no power at all of his own, like Moshe says to God, Ani I have stuffed lips, I can't talk, I have no speech. I can't, see last week in Shemos, two weeks ago in Shemos, Moshe says, it's hard for me to talk. It's hard for me to speak. The next parasha, Moshe Rabbeinu says even deeper, I have a stuffed mouth. It's not hard. I can't talk. Hasidus explains that the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu is hard to talk because he's battled to Hashem. He's so nullified to God, he can't open his mouth. He's trembling before God. But in Parsha Shemos, it was a lower level of Moshe Rabbeinu. He can speak. It's hard to speak. In Parsha's Ve'era, Moshe Rabbeinu elevated to a higher level. He can't even talk. He has stuffed lips. He's battled. He doesn't have a word. He can't. God says, this is what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for it for you to be completely incapable. You can't open your mouth because you're so nullified to me. And now, I'm going to funnel my power, my words through you, and you're going to be my agent. Because your words are not your words. Because God is speaking through you. Now you can take him down because it's not you anymore. Now you're just an extension of me. It's interesting. It says that Rashi, I'm getting off, off topic a little bit, but it's very special. When Moshe and Aaron came, there's a whole discussion of its own, maybe we'll talk about it another time. When Moshe and Aaron came, it says Moshe had to give over the word of God to Paro as it is, Rashi says, in last week's parsha, and Aaron should interpret it. So there's a whole long discussion on it, but it's a very, very powerful idea. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says an incredible idea that when Moshe had to give over the words to Paro, Moshe Rabbeinu needed to speak in the language that God spoke to him, even though Paro had no idea what he's talking about, because Paro didn't understand Lashon HaKodesh. Moshe came in and said, and that's it. He's speaking in Hebrew. And Paro to him, it sounds like, totally has no idea. Aaron then would later translate what Moshe said. So the question is, why does Moshe have to say it? And the answer is, Moshe needed to come to Paro, and with the power of God, break him. It had to be Hashem's words not Moshe's words. He had to hear it directly from God. That power could destroy Paro in all his might and his all his strength. Now let's understand something. When you accomplish this 
and you break Paro, and Paro is all is in all of his might, and in his all of his strength, and you break him. Why is that such a great accomplishment? And what does that have to do with the Jewish people going out of Egypt? This is so so special. You know why? Because when you demonstrate, what does it mean to go out of Egypt? To go out of Egypt ultimately means to recognize that God is and is not but Him. As we said earlier, Eretz, the ultimate going into Eretz Yisrael means you come into a land where you can see Hashem in everything. You can see Hashem in nature. Nature is not concealing. You can see God. You see that Hashem runs everything. There's no power besides Him. The ultimate demonstration to that is that there cannot be anything in this world that is in opposition to God. If it's not what Hashem wants, it doesn't exist. So imagine, imagine if you take all the sparks out from Paro, and you take out all the good from Paro, and all the good from its rhyme, you convert it to holiness. But there is still left something there that is dark and unholy in the world. Something is still left in the world that is dark and unholy. Even, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Yeah. God is beautiful, He's wonderful, He's powerful, He's strong. But there is still a small little avenue, there's still a certain place with the rules that Hashem is and there's none but Him doesn't exist. There's still somewhere. So in other words, let me put it in very simple terms. Imagine if Paro would have remained in power in Egypt. And he would have left, he would have let the Jewish people go, he would have gone to Eretz Yisrael, built a beautiful home, built a base on English, everything. And I would be living in Eretz Yisrael, I'm living exactly according to God's will, that's my power. But what happens if one day I'm on the freeway, and I make a wrong turn, and by mistake I get off in Harlem. I remember, why am I saying Harlem? Today Baruch Hashem Harlem is different than it was when I was growing up as a kid, or in other places in Brooklyn neighborhoods. It was really scary, if you ended up 12 o'clock at night, and by mistake you wanted to get onto the, onto the, onto the, onto the uh, Washington, George Washington Bridge, and by mistake you took the wrong turn, and you turned around, and you didn't know where you were, it was very scary. So imagine getting, well, getting off the bridge and ending up in Egypt. So over here, there's different rules. If I want to experience that there's nothing but Hashem in this world, there has to be that there isn't a place that I can get for it and end up in a place where something other exists. The ultimate meaning that Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Toiva Rechava, a land where God is and He is the reality, means that there is no more not godly in the world. It doesn't exist. In order that it shouldn't exist, you can't just take out the good of Mitzrayim and convert it. You need to destroy that which is, un, is a force of darkness. It needs to be broken. And when that is broken, the Jewish people are freed. Even though the breaking over here, see, and that's why you see in the Makis, there are two, the two kinds of Makis. The Makis until Parsha's bow, until this week's Parsha, it's Part, the point over here is humbling Paro so that he should send the Jewish people out. You're breaking Paro so he should send the Jewish people out. In other words, the idea over here is taking the sparks of holiness that Paro should convert, should, 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 should let the Jewish people out. Having, that, having the unholy transform to Kedusha. Jewish people should go out together with all the sparks of holiness that are there in Paro and in Mitzrayim. Pasha's bow is the next stage. There are elements that are dark and there's nothing to do with them. The Mishnah says in Mesechtis Kalim that there are certain things that become impure and there's no way that you can change the Tumah. The impurity cannot go out. The Gemara says, Shvirasan Zehu Taharasan, translated in English. Breaking them, that's the purification. 
There's no other way to deal with it but to break it. And when you break it, what have you, dis- what have you demonstrated? What have you de- demonstrated when you've broken Klippa? Is that there, something that is against God doesn't exist. That's what you've demonstrated. And if you've done that ag- across the whole world, you're going to be living in a very godly world. Anything that's not godly is broken, is destroyed. That is the essence of this week's parsha. Boyal Para. Boyal Para is telling you that in order for Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim to be complete, and the Jew should go out of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim to go out from any constriction on the truth that this is a Jewish world, a godly world, a holy world, that God is the essence of everything that needs, part of that is, the, part, the name of the parsha is Boy El Para. What's the emphasis? You have a power that is strong, a force against God. Blink your eye, and he's gone. Poof, he's gone, he's destroyed. Then you know, the Yadaitem, you know that I am, that, that I am God. As the beginning of the parsha, Esasha says, I made fun of Egypt, I broke them. For no other reason, just to break them. Because there's nothing left over there anymore, and all that there is left is a klippa that cannot be fixed, and that needs to be broken. And once that's destroyed, in this boyal paroi, you have already the entering into the Eretz Yisrael. Once you accomplish this, you have the full entire geula. Even though literally it's still going to take a few stages until you're going to get there. Uh, power is still going to chase them. They're going to go into the sea. Uh, there's still a bunch of stages. It's going to take 40 years until we go into the land of Israel. But in concept, you have already seen the idea of living in the promised land. What's living in the promised land? All of earth is holy. And there is no place on earth that is unholy. That was demonstrated in this breaking. Now we're going to translate that into something that I think is really, really, really awesome. Really, really, really awesome. Really, really awesome. We're learning Parsha, and we're not learning Parsha just to learn Parsha, which is like, oh, it's nice, Torah says so. To realize that the Parsha that we're learning is reality. And Torah and God is reality. There's nothing that happens in the world that's just happening in the world. Nothing is just happening that happens in the world. When something is happening, it is, especially in the end of days. We have discussed already many times that we're holding in the end of days. And if you open up your eyes, it becomes so evident and so clear that we are experiencing now not just a Boal Paro, but we're experiencing now a Boal Paro a thousand times bigger than the Boal Paro that happened in Mitzrayim. And let me tell you why. Why it's so awesome what's happening right now in the world as we speak. Everybody's realizing, and people think, I, I, I need to get over this because I want everybody to understand, I couldn't care less about American politics. It really doesn't interest me as an entity unto its own. But when we are experiencing redemption in front of our eyes, and God is doing miracles, I have no right to be quiet. Even if I might end up being a little politically incorrect. And therefore, I just want you to know, something to do with political. It's time for Jews and people to open their eyes and take off their blindfold and to see something very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. What has happened is, something happened over here, a stunning upset happened in the last election. Where everybody, all pointers were pointing that it was going to go one way and suddenly, magically, something. 
Now, some people were very happy, and some people were very angry, and very, very, very shaken up, and very upset about this. But there is something very, very deep that one needs to realize is happening. You see, the difference between us going out of Egypt and us going out of in the future redemption is by going out of Egypt, everything was done from above. By our redemption, as a result of all the Torah and mitzvahs that we've done, things unfold naturally from within the world. The same miracles that happened then through Moshe Rabbeinu waving the stick. We've waved the stick for 2,000 years by putting on tefillin and shaking a lulav and doing all that. We waved all the stick for all these miracles to happen. Now they're just happening naturally in the world around us. Now what are we seeing? In the Lam al-Shinim, which we pray for the defeat of unholiness in this world, we say, there's a words over there, especially in the Nusachari, who says, Sa'aker, this is the Nusachari Nusach from the Arizal. Not every Nusach is exactly the same, but the Arizal, which is very perfectly aligned Kabbalistically, it says like this Sa'aker, you should uproot, and all the evil. Sa'aker, you should uproot, Usachale. Uh, no, Sa'aker, you should uproot. Usishaber, you should break. Usachale, you should annihilate. The Sachnia, and you should make it submissive. The Sachnia, you should humble it. So it has explained an interesting idea. That there are certain klipot, there are three impure klipot, there are three dark klipot in the world that are not redeemable. Those klipot need to be broken and destroyed because you can't fix them. Then there is another kind of a klipa, which needs not to be broken, it needs to be subdued and surrendered to holiness. Now just like we mentioned in Yetzirah Mitzrayim, there were two things. There were the Egyptians who came out with the Jewish people. There were the Egyptians, even the firstborn, who were campaigning to let the Jewish people go. Paro fought a war against them. And then there were the Egyptians who just said, no, you're not allowed to go. And he stopped them. What was the majority in Egypt? In Egypt, the majority was that which was sublimated or the majority was that that which was broken? In Egypt, the majority was broken and only part of it, there was some that became Erev Rav that joined the Jewish people. There were some of the resources that became Jewish. There were some of the sparks, all the sparks that went out, but mostly was destroyed and a little bit was salvaged. By the up and coming redemption, it's going to be the opposite. Most of it is salvaged, but there is that which is evil that needs to be destroyed and broken. Now, we find something very interesting. When we look at this, we, we see something very clear. Something godly is taking place in Washington. What do I mean godly? Somebody is pulling the strings. Because the world suddenly started, Washington DC and the United States is now run, is on, is on a spin like a dreidel. And it's spinning every day quicker and quicker. And someone every day throws it into a different spin. And the media is going crazy. Going nuts. But I want to say something. And this is something that needs to be, please understand me because I'm not, there's nothing to do with anything but to, to, to convey because I need, we need to open up our eyes and recognize something. When it comes to certain issues, now there are issues on both sides of the, of the aisle that relate to decency and goodness, and then there are, once you get to the extreme of both sides of the right and the left, you get to very unholy things, that's for sure. But in general, let's ask a simple question, okay? 
I'm just going to point out two or three issues in which the question is, what is godly and what is ungodly? The question is, in a world that the Abishter has created and God wants, does God want that people should have the right to go and kill millions of innocent babies before they're born? Is that the will of the Abishter? Can anybody who has got any sense of morality and believes in Hashem can say that that is something that the Abishter, that God gives an approval of and that's what's right and that's what's good just because a person has to have a right to choose? I want to ask that question. I want to ask another question. Does anybody who, on the question of whether a marriage is between a man or a woman, we're not going into the question of budding into your life what you're doing in your bedroom. That's not the question. The question over here is, is a marriage the way God wants it to be a man or a, and a woman or whatever anybody wants, whatever you want. Not only that, but reach the point where if someone says that I believe that the marriage is a marriage between a man and a woman, they're looked at as a, what is it called? Uh, 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 I forgot already. No, I forgot the word that they used. Like a, these are, these are fundamental. In a God's world, is this okay? That, that the whole foundation of family life, I'm talking about Jews, I'm talking about f- for humanity, should be taken away. The whole idea that, there is, that in general there is a man and a woman, and therefore you can't just choose whichever one you want, and therefore there should be men's rooms and women's rooms. So let's take a look at what has been going on in this country in the last seven years. When the Empire State Building and the White House was lit up, lit up with rainbow colors just a few years ago for the whole world to see that we laugh at God's commandments and we totally disregard that. Is there anything opposite, antithetical to Eretz Yisrael, a holy land, a land that recognizes God as the source of their life? Is there something like this ever? Isn't this a total rebellion against God? It's, It's unbelievable. And the last and final issue, when it comes to the Jewish people, if we belong in Eretz Yisrael, if we're occupied territories, we're taking something away. So you see that those that were in power, and they're not in power anymore, and miraculously, through divine intervention, are not in power anymore, we're the ones that at least, and we can get into many other, but at least in these three primary issues, if Hashem wants the Jewish people to return to the land of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem to be the God's eternal city. Is that consistent with God's will that there should be one city, Eretz Yisrael is Eretz Yisrael, or, is it, or does God want Chas V'Shalem that the, the, the Israel should be divided? Does God want Chas V'Shalem that the institution of marriage should be demolished from the face of the earth? Does God want that, that there should be free reign to kill thousands, millions of, of people just because of whatever? It's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient. Does God, so the question is on all these, what is godly and what is ungodly? So God went and removed those that were standing for all of this from power. Instead, he put in, in power someone who not only has different beliefs, but someone who was, as we spoke in the earlier classes, on the one hand is not a considered a refined, elevated human being, but on the other hand, couldn't, doesn't care one iota for, for, um, public opinion, or at least the media opinion, and is going about doing what he needs to do in regards to making this world more consistent. I'm not saying what his intentions are. I don't know. But the bottom line is things that are happening. 
And what's, what's, what's so amazing is everything is being done by executive order. Executive order, executive order. Which on the one hand is like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold it. But on the other hand, see, you see, here's the thing. When you have someone, we know Lev Malach and Beyad Hashem. The heart of kings are in the hands of God. And it's true by all kings. How much more so when the king is instable and unstable? Then you can see clearly that everything is executive order. It's coming from God Himself. Executive means executive of executive. But I want to say something very deep. We spoke about the Zohar saying that the real, real defeat of Paro is when you go into the room, the room of rooms, to the inner, inner, inner chamber, and over there you defeat him. Here, here, what's going on, this is unbelievable. Which room is the most powerful room in the world? Which room is the idrim b'teichidrim, the place in which the most power that there is? That's the Oval Office. And take a look what's happening. First of all, the man that's over there is claiming that he's going to assist the Jewish people. In his rallying, didn't say a word when we're starting rebuilding thousands of apartments in Jerusalem, not protesting. Putting up a person who's going to stand for his, his, his to and moving the embassy to Yerushalayim. And in most of the issues that we spoke about before, standing up for what God wants in this world. And on the other hand, instead of the Jewish people having to tear and break the darkness, he is doing the work. In an unbelievable way. Let's understand something. What is the biggest darkness in this world? The biggest darkness in this world for the last who knows how many years is the New York Times. You think it's a joke. But the reason why there can be terrorists, terrorists murdering people is because they're legitimizing it. Who is legitimizing it? The New York Times legitimizes it. CNN legitimizes All with a sense of false sense of piety. All with a, a, a sense of, of, of compassion and of care. But it's not... You see, it's, and it's, you see it's an insanity. It's a clipper. But what's happening is, you see an amazing thing. Makas after makas are coming now. Every day. But, the, but, but, but they're coming so quick that the media doesn't even know who to protest against again. Because every day there's a new one. So what are you protesting? And it's taking down this lie. And he is very, again, you see this as an act of God. He's standing and looking the media in the eye and saying, fake news. This is what it is. It really is a fake. It's been a lie for the last, the lie that this is Palestinian land is a lie. It's really, but no one would dare. That's the thing. No one would dare have the audacity because they had such power. And now it's being broken. From who? In the White House. In the Oval Office. The man that's there is the fourth clipper that can be transformed and elevated. You know what it says right before Mashiach comes in this Giyola? We said it on last week's Haftorah. On Shabbos Rosh Chodesh. It says that in the end of days, the non-Jews are going to bring the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael. They're going to help in building Yerushalayim. What does that mean if not moving the embassy? Who would have believed that two years ago that we're going to have a president in the thing who is not going to care and is going to openly move the embassy to Jerusalem? The only problem is the Jews have to be willing to accept that. We're still scared. But the Abishter has done that. Don't you see the full boyo paroi and the idea of breaking the klipa? It's happening. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it, things we're watching the news and saying, what's happening? What all I am saying is that you were watching the final, last and final redemption unfold in front of your eyes, my eyes. We have to open up our eyes and recognize. And again, this has nothing to do with political party. This has to do when you, when you just have a sense for that which is holy and godly in the world. And you see on what the whole media is going berserk 
and going crazy on. And it's like touching upon things that like, are, whoa, these exactly are the big clipa de galais. Exactly when you're hitting a nerve in so many thousands of people. And this is the lies that have been fed to so many people throughout the whole time. And now they're being busted one at a time. Taken down, and it's beautiful, exactly what we spoke about earlier. Taken down in all of its might, in the, in the epitome of its strength and of its power, it's being broken. It's being broken. One at a time. It's, it's really, really, really fascinating. And may we merit that we shouldn't have to talk about it. But this, all, this whole stage of destruction of that which is ungodly in this world, and the replacement of that which is Kedusha, should go so quickly and that the ultimate executive order should be the order of Moshiach Tzadkenu, like the descendant of David HaMelech, who is going to definitely, without any ends, take the reins from Donald Trump and uh, complete the work after he's finished uh, breaking all these myths and destroying all that in, in his... In his, um, <laughs> in his uh, what's the right word... Unique way of him doing it, uh, maybe maybe in the coarse way and and, and and the way that, it, but after he's finished doing it, we know for sure that uh, we are we are in the midst of a redemption, and as a Hashem, we're going to see the conclusion of this redemption. May it be speedily in our days.